Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you are of the generous sort, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. I'm Zach Crum, and joining me for today's episode is my good friend, Stephen Stang. Stephen grew up in Loudoun County, Virginia, and received his bachelor's in fish conservation from Virginia Tech. He is currently completing his master's at the University of Florida, as well as working as a freshwater fisheries biologist with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Stephen has worked on fisheries research and management projects in Virginia, Idaho, Alabama, and Florida, where he is currently studying striped bass populations in the Florida Panhandle. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Stephen. I'm really excited to chat with you. Thanks so much for reaching out to me, Zach. I really appreciate it. I look forward to talking with you as well. It means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to get rolling. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's some probably possibly some other fellow Virginia Tech Hokies listening to this podcast. I know we represent the fisheries field pretty strongly. Yeah, I sure hope so. I've tried to have a couple on. It's always great talking with uh, fellow fellow Hokies on here. So, so to kind of lead us in, I'm always curious to ask people that I have on the show how they first became interested in fish, um, sort of what got them obsessed more or less with the aquatic environment and fish in particular. So what sort of led you into this in terms of uh, loving fish and fishery science and how it all came together for you? I would say it, it all, it's all starts with my dad taking the time to take me out fishing when I was young. I can think back to the first fish I ever caught. I'll never forget it. Fishing with my dad, just in farm ponds growing up, fishing for largemouth bass, bluegill, catfish. That was what got me really excited about fishing and fish themselves. And, and that's kind of the beginning of it. As I got older, I started fishing the trout streams of West Virginia, really fell in love with, with trout fishing and, and those streams over there. And then as I got, got older and into high school, I started to think about what I wanted to do as a, as a career. I was lucky enough to be able to go down on vacation down to Southwest Florida almost annually with my family and really fell in love with the fishing down there. And knew that I, I, it was my passion. I knew then that, that fishing was my passion. And getting close to graduation, I just started thinking about career paths. I was interested in potentially being a conservation officer. And, and then I found out that Virginia Tech actually had a fish conservation program. And I decided to apply and, and got in and started to, to learn, learn a lot more about fishery science in the classroom and in the field with different, different internship and volunteer positions at Virginia Tech. And uh so it seems like you got a little bit of every a taste of a little bit of everything in terms of fishing, like you had of lakes and rivers and marine experiences in, in fishing growing up. Was there anything that stuck out to you from sort of the three of those systems as something that you were most interested in? Or was it all kind of just like this idea of fish in the broad scale? Um, really growing up, going over and fishing in West Virginia, a lot of the trout we fished for were put and take trout stockings, water bodies. And I thought it was really interesting. I remember visiting the trout hatcheries with my dad and seeing how those fish were raised and the work that went into raising those fish and stocking those fish. I remember looking at those hatchery personnel and thinking that, that was a really cool job. I would, I would love to have their job. I just remember that feeling from an early age and just thinking about all the, the work that went into creating that fishery was just really interesting to me, how that, how you can have kind of a hands-on approach of creating a fishery that draws anglers and and creates this exciting experience for them to go pursue these, these trout, which otherwise weren't, wouldn't be there unless these trout stocking programs were in place. So that was really interesting to me. 
And I was also extremely captivated by the saltwater world, just the fact that these fish were, a lot of these species were, as far as fishing goes, just hard fighting, different than just something I never saw growing up. Starting to catch redfish, snook, trout, flounder, grouper, seeing tarpon, it just, it was a whole nother ball game, a whole nother league. And so that just really captivated me on the angling side of things. And then also just trying to understand how those fish, how their populations worked. Um, yeah. was just a lot more complex and, and interesting for me to, to learn about and read about. And it just was really captivating to me. Yeah, no, it's crazy. That's the one thing that's always been kind of stuck out to me when I first started fishing was this incredible diversity you have um, and how versatile it is in terms of what you can target, what times of year. Fishing is crazy and I still don't understand it. Sometimes I feel like it, it teaches me new things every time I go out. So personally, yeah, that's what I was kind of excited with. And it's cool that you had a similar experience getting to see some of that variety. It's also cool that you got to see like fisheries professionals at kind of in, at an early age. Because gosh, I don't know. I, I must have been in high school before I realized like, oh, you can actually like research fish. <laughs> and that's what people do for a job. And I think that's really cool. Part of the reason why I was so excited to host this podcast, right? Like, so just spreading the word on like what we do as fisheries professionals and hopefully getting people excited about that and kind of just fostering that next generation of people into the field. Yeah, definitely. And and one thing I could say is, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you might be in high school or might even be an undergrad and you're trying to figure out what you want to do is I always recommend going on to the Texas A&M job board is a really good place to look and just look at jobs. And if you're going to take a risk and move across the country or move away from home for a summer and and you don't understand what jobs are out there. You know you love fish and conservation and fishing, but and you want to work in the field, but you don't really know what those jobs are. There are plenty of jobs posted on that job board and you can just take a chance and see what you like, what you don't like. And the people you meet along the way will really lead you into all kinds of opportunities. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely shows you like career possibilities and where you can take it and just how, like I said, how diverse and cool some of those options are. So circling back to your time at Virginia Tech, so obviously we graduated the same year. I was curious if you wanted to talk about some of your volunteer experience at the Paint Bank Trout Hatchery where we worked together. Yeah, it's definitely. Um, so Paint Bank's located about an hour from Blacksburg and it's, it's one of the, the hatcheries that, that works in as part of Virginia's uh, trout stocking program. Brian Beers, the manager over there, is a very knowledgeable guy and, and very generous and and I remember visiting that hatchery and, and he took the time to talk to me for a few hours one day and, and uh, was willing to, to take me on as a volunteer and show me the ropes of everything involved with, with trout production, stuff that I didn't even realize existed. To me, going in, I, I just realized, thought you have fish in a raceway, you feed them and you stock them and that's it. And there's so much more to the story. And uh, I can't thank him enough for, for trusting me and, and allowing me to, to do really anything and everything that a hatchery technician does. And yeah, learned a lot and, and really realized how how much of an impact that that fisheries professionals can have on the public. And I, I'll never forget being on streams after we stocked and, and talking to anglers and, and hearing how their opinions were and what they thought and trying and getting really connected to the stakeholders that way. It was a great opportunity for that. And um, also seeing the the cooperative effort between different states and trying to get fisheries created. I know that we were sending triploid brown trout eggs to multiple states across the country so that they could stock uh, fingerling triploid brown trout in a certain tail race fisheries to create these, these world-class brown trout fisheries. And, and it was just a neat to see that, you know, these anglers were catching these, these fish. And, and at the end of the day, they all started their lives in the mountains of, of Southwest Virginia. It was really cool. Um, and then also getting the opportunity to talk to those hatchery technicians and just seeing like what their day-to-day lives were like and 
actually getting to be with a fisheries professional that I could be someday was very, very beneficial to me. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, it really just goes to show what can happen if you if you reach out. Like, don't be afraid, you know, if to to reach out to people and and try to make connections because generally, from what I found, people are very willing to work with you and excited, most cases, to show you, you know, what they work with. Because I mean, that's why we all we do all do this stuff, right? Because we love fish. I mean, that's pretty much what it what the root of it all is. So yeah, it's, it's really cool. And if, you know, you're just starting out in this field, I would say, don't be afraid to put yourself out there in terms of trying to make connections and learn more because generally people are very willing to share. Yeah, definitely. I would say that there's definitely a a lot of, a variety of personalities in the fisheries field, but when you all get together in the same room, it seems like everyone gets along no matter what their walk of life is like, or their background is like, we're all kind of united under this one passion and it's, yeah. it's really interesting it's really it's unique and it's awesome i really love it especially american fishery society's meetings you get to see that that we're all kind of united under this one common passion and it's it's neat it's yeah. unique, i feel like to many other fields so yeah going kind of like progressing through your uh journey because i know most of this stuff <laughs> um but just kind of <laughs> progressing through how yeah how your course looked because everyone has a lot of my my friends that have been in this field and people I've talked to on the podcast have had sort of a completely different like path in terms of how they've how they've grown in, in fishery science. So for you, step two, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was out in Idaho, right? Yeah, yeah. So I after talking with another Hokie his senior year who worked out there, he convinced me to take a shot and apply to a position out in the Clearwater region, um, working with Robert Hand, one of the biologists out there, and. Uh, I applied for the job and got it and and went out West and not knowing what to expect, never being West of the Mississippi river and, um, and got to see, see a lot of new things and meet a lot, a lot of different people and work with, with some of the most amazing fish that North America has, in my opinion, and some of the, the Chinook salmon and steelhead that ran up that river, making the, the journey over eight dams. And like I said, over 600 miles to their spawning locations was just amazing to me, mind-blowing. So, um, so the, the, the fisheries themselves and also the, the caliber of the biologists I was working with was extremely impressive to me. And it definitely opened my eyes to, wow, there's a lot of potential in this field and there's a lot of amazing work being done. Um, I learned a lot. It was first time I was really independent that whole summer. I was across the country and, and yeah, I learned a lot. Definitely took me out of my comfort zone. And I can't say I can't encourage that enough because you have to, um, you have to break out of your comfort zone to take that, those jobs. And it pays off because you make connections and you get to see what you like, what you don't like and, and start to build your resume up as you kind of go throughout uh, your undergraduate career. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's, that's huge sort of, yeah. Like if you're able to, you know, getting just a wide variety of experience always helps. And especially, like you said, just getting out of your comfort zone and getting into something completely new is always going to be a, a really beneficial learning experience. So I think that's that's really cool that you, you're you able to get that while in undergrad is, is awesome. Okay, so after Idaho, you sort of got out of the freshwater realm a little bit, right? So you spent some time down at Mo Marine Lab in Florida, if I remember correctly, right? So what was that time like? Yeah, so that was a, a REU research experience for undergraduates program I applied for and, and got working at their marine aquaculture park. We were raising Almaco Jack, Red Drum, Snook, and Pompano, and uh, had a variety of different research projects going on there. And so that was kind of like 
I had some hatchery experience with trout, cold water trout production. And then this was a marine aquaculture facility. And I got to see a lot of the differences between the two systems and, and what goes into having that much salt water to raise that, that many fish inland. We were pretty far inland. So all that salt water had to be obviously managed continuously for the, the biomass we were raising. We had to, to regulate all, a lot of different water chemistry factors. And, and yeah, I got to help a, a graduate student with her research, looking at Almaco jacks and how to disinfect their eggs prior to hatching and increase survival. That was really neat. Um, and I also got to help with some acoustic tagging of common snook uh, with the, the fisheries team and trying to see where these mature broodfish were going during the spawning season. And that was also very interesting as well. So great people down at Moat uh, have some long lasting connections. Sweet. Yeah, that sounds like a good time. I guess you can't really go wrong if you're out fishing for snook and tagging them for research. After you graduated, you you went down to Alabama, right? Yeah, yeah. I went down to Alabama and worked in University of South Alabama's fisheries ecology lab, located on Dolphin Island, Alabama. And like I like growing up, fell in love with saltwater fishing, and I've always been interested in saltwater fisheries research. But I did not understand how exactly you how how that research is done, and I was and I really wanted to pursue a a position that involved that, and really got my got to, my eyes were opened a lot with that position. Got to see um, a lot of the work that goes into the great red snapper count, um, long days offshore, um, sampling red snapper with banded reels and, and dropping ROVs down on the bottom and taking videos of those reefs and getting estimates of abundance and, and, and saw how much work goes into counting fish in the Gulf of Mexico. Obviously counting the number of red snapper in the Gulf of Mexico is a lot different than counting largemouth bass in a, in a 20 acre pond. So that was extremely interesting to me and got to meet some incredible people, uh, got to work with some awesome fishing captains down there. We were part of a great trigger fish tagging program and as well as a Southern Flounder acoustic telemetry project and got to work with one of the best guys in the area, Captain Richard Rutland and, and Dylan Keene, the, the PhD student down there with, with that Southern Flounder acoustic telemetry project, trying to figure out when they were heading offshore to spawn, when they're coming back inshore after that spawning migration. And yeah, really got to see a lot of different aspects of, of saltwater fisheries research. Yeah. I mean, so what was that like going from Clearwater streams to kind of like the Gulf of Mexico? Was it kind of a transition? Yeah, it was, I mean, huge difference. Definitely. Um, there's some parallels and I, I feel like there is a lot of differences in saltwater and freshwater fisheries research and management. There are differences and, and, and somehow the fields, and in some ways the fields are disconnected, but there are also a lot of similarities. And I feel like the importance of bridging that gap and starting to realize how things are done in each type of system is very important because the more you collaborate with each other, the more you start to see, okay, in this, in this situation, this worked well, in this situation, it didn't. And how can we kind of improve that? And, and I feel like the, you know, there's a lot of parallels that can be built off of between the freshwater and marine side of things. And definitely a lot more estimation going on in the marine world, but it's getting better and better and the science is getting better and better. So I feel like with every year, the grasp we have on, on these populations is getting better and our estimates are getting better. And it's gonna be exciting to see where this goes yeah, definitely. It's cool thinking about too some of the some of the really incredible success stories that have come out of marine fisheries management. Like my favorite fish, the red drum, had a pretty huge success story, right? So after having pretty decimated populations in portions of the seventies, have now sort of have have risen back and we have this really awesome fishery here in the United States. So yeah, like you said, you know, we have a ton of improvements being made and seeing 
you know, in real time, how this improves throughout like our careers as fisheries professionals, I think it's going to be very exciting. Oh yeah, definitely. All right. So while we were both doing our undergrad, uh, you and I had the opportunity to actually fish as partners on the Virginia Tech bass fishing team. And I got a lot out of that experience during my undergraduate career. And I was curious if you just wanted to chat about kind of some of your takeaways from fishing on the, on the bass fishing team there at Tech. Yeah, definitely. I, I will say the first thing, as far as the fishing aspect goes, it was definitely a humbling experience. I remember walking into those, that first meeting and realizing, wow, I thought I knew how to bass fish and I thought I knew a lot about fishing. And then some of the guys on that team were obviously very experienced and I was like, I have a lot to learn from them. And that definitely, that was a humbling experience. And then also going to some of these lakes around Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and learning how to start from ground zero, how to figure out the fishery, how to pattern the fishery based on the time of year, the water temperature, um, the species you're targeting, whether it was largemouth bass, spotted bass, or smallmouth, it was definitely a learning curve. And I realized on the bass team how valuable anglers are to talk to to figure out kind of the pulse of the fishery and what it's doing and how they know so much because there really is no substitute for time on the water. And I definitely honestly believe that a lot of these bass anglers, they, they know just as much as a lot of the biologists that are managing those reservoirs because they just see the fishery and how it changes throughout the year. And they, they definitely notice any, anything changing with the population. And so, yeah, definitely an awesome experience getting to travel around, around different states and, and seeing different water bodies, how they're managed, how, the, how certain water bodies were, were drawn down eight feet during certain times of the year and, and why that was done and how that changes habitat. Definitely good learning experience. Yeah, no, it's, it was crazy to me seeing the diversity and like you could put your boat on the trailer and get in the car and, and, you know, several hours in either direction, the diversity you could see in that range was incredible. And um, some of the different fisheries that we had at our disposal were really cool too. And I guess one of the things that I've really felt since I started fishing as a kid was that I've only recently realized is that to be an angler, you have to start, you have to basically think like a fisheries biologist, whether you know it or not, and whether you're, you know, you put two and two together. When you go fishing, you're thinking, thinking like a fisheries biologist. And I think that was really evident to our time together <laughs> fishing on the bass team. And sometimes, you know, our hypotheses as anglers uh, worked out and other times not so much. And we went home with the big zero. <laughs> yeah. But, definitely. you know, that's how it goes, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of, at the end of the day, a lot of it is, is fish, you know, they have tails, they move and they do things. They don't have to follow, follow a script. And, yeah. and even when you're not catching fish or even when you're not getting fish the way you want to sample them for a certain project, you're always learning. And no day, no two days are the same. It seems like I, all the days I've fished or all the days I've been on the water, electric fishing, setting gill nets, whatever. It seems like I've never had two days the same. And I, you know, there's always something to learn from it. Yeah. And, Definitely. It comes back to no substitute for time on the water and just paying attention to the little things. Yeah. So let's go to where you're at now. Um, so you're, you're down in Florida working as a fisheries biologist for the Florida FWC, also working on your master's. Um, but I'm curious, first off, can you tell me what your job's like as a fisheries biologist there? Yeah, so I, I work uh, just west of Tallahassee, about 30 minutes west of Tallahassee out of Quincy, Florida at the Joe Bud Wildlife Field Office. So our office is located on a wildlife management area. Um, we have wildlife biologists that, that work out of that office, law enforcement, and then we have three fisheries biologists. Andy Strickland is my supervisor. I work with Ryan Henry. He's another biologist. And um, we help 
research, we work uh, in it's Florida Fish and Wildlife Research Institute's Division of Freshwater Fisheries Research. And so we uh, we research streams and rivers in Florida's panhandle, including the Apalachicola River, Chipola River, which has shoal bass. The only population of shoal bass in the state of Florida is in the Chipola River and some small sections of the Apalachicola River. Um, Lake Talquin and the Ocalocne River drainage, um, St. Mark's River, Osceola River, Hand Handle. And uh, our job is to kind of research and understand what's going on with the different fish populations and inform our management partners on on uh, if there is a need for any type of regulation change or just the status of, their, of different populations. Um, so FWC has a, a long-term monitoring program with their freshwater fisheries, and we'll uh, monitor or select uh, we have some LTM core water bodies that we electrofish every year just to do a basic community sampling on and see how what the abundance and size structure of all fish species we sample looks like. And then we also have largemouth bass specific targeted sampling for largemouth bass in the spring on a few water bodies uh, to look specifically at largemouth bass populations and abundance and trends over time. And when we're not doing long-term monitoring work, we have room to do a variety of different research projects. Uh, right now, Ryan, who I work with, is working with shoal bass as part of his master's thesis and trying to look at how their populations have responded to the impacts of Hurricane Michael. There is a, a few fish kills as a result of some sewage spills and, and habitat loss. And, and we definitely noticed uh, a decreasing trend in their population abundance as a result. And so we're trying to see uh, what what their population looks like now, and then potentially have a stocking program put in place to, to put fingerling shoal bass in that river system and, and see how they uh, contribute to the population. We also help with the uh, Gulf Stripe Bass Management Program, which is a, a tri-state agreement between Alabama, Florida, and Georgia to restore Gulf Stripe Bass in their uh, native uh, water bodies. Lake Talquin is a broodfish repository for Gulf Stripe bass. So we stock them as fingerlings every year and we collect them as brood stock every year to be sent to the hatchery to be spawned for Gulf Stripe bass production. And those fish can be stocked um, back into Lake Talquin and also in some water bodies that, we're, we're, that we have the goal of sustaining a Gulf Stripe bass population into. We also stock hybrid striped bass throughout the state of Florida, uh, known as sunshine bass to many Florida anglers. It's a cross between a female white bass and a male striped bass. And we collect white bass females and striped bass males every March in the Ocalocne River uh, and send them to our hatchery, uh, one of our hatcheries to be spawned. And, and those fingerlings are stocked throughout the, pan, the panhandle and um, central Florida to create hybrid striped bass fisheries. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, Definitely a, our busiest time of the year is, is striped bass restock collection. We we spend a lot of time shocking below the, the dam of Lake Talcon, and we actually do a lot of hook and line sampling as well as a way to to get up with anglers while they're fishing. We don't want to roll up on them with a shocking boat necessarily while they're fishing, so we'll come up beside them and we'll fish. and And we built a really good relationship with our local anglers, and and have many instances of anglers donating their their big female stripers for us to be used as stock as well. So it's definitely a pretty good connection we have with our local anglers. That's awesome. That's really cool. You're getting some of that really amazing collaboration that kind of helps us all to work in the grand scheme of things. So I guess that kind of brings us to your master's work. Cause I know that's working with, with golf strike bass, right? Yeah. So uh, one of the big questions we have currently is, is we seem to be uh, seeing a, a lack in, in the size of 
of the larger striped bass that we're used to seeing in, in, the, in Lake Talquin and the Akalakian River. Uh, catches of fish in the mid 20 to high 20 pound range wasn't necessarily uncommon 10 years ago, and it's becoming more and more uncommon and increasingly rare to see those fish. And so we're wondering why Th- those fish are important for hatchery production. Those, those fish, those females produce exponentially more eggs once they get, get to that size than females of smaller sizes. And it's important to have a variety of year classes in your population in case there is multiple years of poor year class strength. You don't want to have only four year classes in your population. So we're trying to, we're trying to figure out why that, that is. And so there's kind of two aspects to, to this study. And, and one is angler exploitation, trying to figure out how many of these fish are being caught and harvested every year and see if, if that can be putting a dent in their population, how it's impacting it, and also looking at the impacts of climate change and how that's impacting their populations. Okay, so let's stop there. So what, I'm curious for any of our listeners that might not be aware, what's the difference between a golf striped bass and those from the Atlantic coast? So appearance-wise, they look identical. Um, the difference is, is, is really in their DNA, um, and it wasn't really determined until the 1980s that there was a different uh, genetic strain of, of golf striped bass from the Atlantic uh, striped bass. And when the striped striped bass are native to the Gulf of Mexico and, and rivers from the Suwannee River west to Texas, um, and their numbers started to decline in the 1960s, stocking efforts were initiated to restore their populations. And they were using fish, a lot of Atlantic strain fish from South Carolina to restore these populations. And uh, after looking at the genetics of these fish, they realized there was a different haplotype between golf strain striped bass and Atlantic strain striped bass, especially in the, in the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, and Flint River system, because there were still golf striped bass reproducing in that, in that drainage. As soon as they identified that there was a difference genetically between golf striped bass and Atlantic, they discontinued the stocking of Atlantic striped bass in Florida and only allowed west of the Suwannee River. There are Atlantic strain striped bass in the St. John's River. And so starting in the 1990s, only golf strain striped bass can be stocked in, in Florida west of the Suwannee River. Okay. They're, they're primarily riverine and they don't really go into the salt except for the winter time when the water temperatures allow them to get to go out in the salt, but mainly they're living in these rivers and go to springs that, that have thermal refuge. Okay. In the summer months. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess that kind of brings us back. So you said you're looking at angler exploitation and you're trying to distinguish what the, what the impacts of climate change are on these populations. So how are you going about doing that for your, for your master's work? So we know that these fish go into the backs of creeks and Lake Talquin during the summer months to escape the heat, especially the bigger fish. They, they become increasingly sensitive to water temperatures higher than 70 degrees Fahrenheit in the summertime. And we also have uh, non-native aquatic vegetation uh, growing in the backs of these creeks and, and dying and settling out. So, so we were wondering, is, is the mutt buildup in the backs of these creeks potentially um, shallowing out these refuge areas? Also, how could rainfall events be impacting the temperatures of these creeks? with climate change that, that can all be having an impact. So these creeks flow into Lake Talquin and, and the cooler, denser water sinks and, and can sometimes travel up, up to half a mile from the creek mouth into the reservoir and these striped bass are tucked up into these creek mouths and they're already stressed and any fluctuation in that temperature can be enough to prohibit those fish from surviving beyond age four or five. And so we, we were curious in what are the temperatures of these creeks and, and just what is the overall thermal refuge habitat looking like, like, looking like in Lake Talquin? And so we dropped temperature loggers and took weekly dissolved oxygen readings throughout the summer months in these creeks to try to see what that, that's looking like, to see if it is it even possible for this 
system to support these larger striped bass today that, that were previously being caught. And then we paired that, we're gonna pair that data with what we're, we're learning with this, this angler exploitation study to see what's the impact of fishing mortality on this size structure. And currently we're working on collecting fish for an age sample to look at total mortality. And from that, we'll be able to parse out fishing mortality, natural mortality, and kind of see what factors are contributing to this lack in these older age classes. And, and uh, we don't know, we, we don't have our age sample completed yet. We're in the process of doing that now, um, collecting fish in Lake Taplin to, to be used for age samples. Okay. So we'll hopefully have the answer to that question in the next month. Nice. Okay, so these larger striped bass are more sensitive to higher temperatures and lower dissolved oxygen than, than smaller fish, correct? Yes. Yeah. The, the larger they get, the more sensitive they are to warmer water. And if you look in the Apalachicola River in Lake Seminole, which is less than an hour from Lake Talquin, where they actually have legitimate springs, uh, they see fish that are 15 years old and in excess of 30 pounds. Whereas in Lake Talquin, these are actually, these are groundwater creeks. They're not really springs and the, the water still gets close to 70 degrees in the summertime. And, and, I, and we think that, that that definitely is why we're not seeing fish really older than age five. Whereas in systems that have these springs, they, they see older fish because they can tolerate that polar water. We definitely don't have any lack in forage as far as uh, shad abundance goes. And we have some of the fastest growing striped bass that, that have ever been recorded in, in this system. It's just a matter of they're not reaching the, these older age classes. And it's concerning because if we have a situation where we have poor juvenile survival in two consecutive years, then you look at a situation where you wouldn't have females that mature at age three. If you don't have age three and age four-year-old fish because of two bad year classes, then when we try to collect broodstock, we have a problem. So it's definitely important to have as many year classes as we can in this system. So is there any like hydrological modification that could be impacting sediment buildup in some of those creeks or is it more just like? So it's definitely the die off of these non-native plants is contributing to muck buildup because in the channel of these creeks, it's sand bottom. We took, we've taken muck sediment, core sediment samples and yeah. like outside of these creek channels, it's just muck, like up to two feet of muck inside the creek channel is hard sand bottom. And if you think about just plants dying every year and building up, building up that muck level if that creek used to be 10 feet deep and now it's seven feet deep and then six yeah. feet deep with time you're just shrinking that level of thermal refuge they can go to and then altered flow regime so if, if we're not getting as much rain different things like with climate change i'm not an expert but if frequency of rainfall is changing and total rainfall is changing then flows obviously are changing and that can impact the size of your thermal refuges which if in the past we had a certain amount of rainfall and at a certain frequency, and then that's changing with a species that's already at its extent of its range and already kind of holding on, any small change can be enough to push them over the edge. So Yeah. So potentially too, with frequency of rainfall changing could potentially impact eutrophication, which could have implications for those fish that are jammed up in those creeks trying to escape the hot summer temps. Yeah. Definitely. And it's different than, than a lot of striped bass fisheries in the Southeast where you have 150 plus foot reservoir where these fish get stratified or they, they sit in the, in the deeper, cooler water level. And they're kind of when the lake stratifies, they're in main lake, but at depth. And one thing we notice is, is these fish that are in the Bassies creeks are extremely healthy. They're full of shad. They're eating throughout the summer up like at least three-year-old fish are. 
Whereas in a lot of lakes, even in Virginia that are 200 feet deep that have cold water, they don't look like that in the summer because the, the way the lake stratifies, the shad will be above them yeah. and they won't even go up 10 feet to feet. They'll just stay down in depth and, and starve throughout the summer. Whereas these fish are in a creek where there's shad and they can cost leak. So they seem to have good conditions throughout the summer. Even these are fish that are like 22 inches long. So yeah, they'll be two years old this spring and yeah, they're, they're in good condition. But we, it's not like we're seeing 25, 30 pounders back in there that are in good condition, which is what's concerning. Right. Yeah. Because uh, the bigger they get, they're just a bigger bodied fish. They have more demands on their metabolism and it's harder for them to maintain that. They'll just start to get skinny and they have to recover from spawning out their eggs that spring. So Interesting. Are there any efforts to monitor potential summer fish kills? Not that I know of. I haven't seen any die-offs of fish floating to the surface, which, you know, would be interesting. I wonder if alligators have something to do with it because we definitely yeah. see alligators in these creeks and they probably eat a lot of the fish they're dying off. Yeah, um, true. But we really don't see die- fish kills and, and striped bass floating. It doesn't mean they're not dying. It's just they definitely don't float up massive fish kill events. It doesn't seem like we're seeing that. Gotcha. Well, cool. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome master's project. I can't wait to hear some of the results that you come up with and hear all about it. Yeah, we're definitely, we've learned one thing we didn't really know exactly was how many fish, we have a lot of fish moving through the dam. And so we, we tagged a hundred fish in Lake Talquin and we tagged a hundred fish below Lake Talquin, below the dam. And we've had 31 fish recaptured in Lake Talquin. And of those 31, 23 of those were recaptured below the dam. And so definitely a lot of fish are coming through, uh, Historically, uh, Lake Talcum used for was used for hydroelectric power generation, and up until recently, that was discontinued. So now there is a power plant, but they don't send water through the turbine turbines; they send it just through the floodgates. And so, which basically means anytime they open those floodgates, fish are freely able to pass through. So we think that there's a chance that more fish are being sucked through the dam than usual, which can act basically as acting as a way of not fishing mortality, but it's removing fish from the system. And so that the rate of fish leaving Lake Talcum could be higher than in the past. And if you if you start with a certain number of two and three-year-olds, if the rate that you're removing is getting higher, then obviously you'd have fewer four-year-old fish. So that could be having something to do with what we're seeing. We're also seeing it, we tag every largemouth bass that we sample over eight pounds, we tag as part of a, a program we're looking at trophy largemouth bass exploitation across the state of Florida. And to date, we've had more than four of our eight-pound largemouth get caught below the dam that were originally tagged in Lake Talquin. So we're seeing movement of largemouth, striped bass. We know shatter being stuck through and crappie. So that's also something to, to look at is dam escapement and how that's impacting them. There, there's been studies in the past where they've tagged striped bass in the Apalachicola River below Lake Seminole that have been recaptured below Lake Talquin, and that's over a 100-mile swim of them going down the Apalachicola into the Gulf, up around and up Aquaki River. So there's definitely movement going on in the salt water when the water allows them to do it. We just don't know how much. So there, there's plenty of research that we can do in the future looking at when these fish are moving and where. And definitely interesting. Anatomous pelagic fish. So Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So what advice would you give to undergraduate students or those that are just starting off in fishery science in terms of how they can progress their career and move forward in this field? One of my closing remarks would be that I would just highly recommend if you're listening and you're a student 
or you're looking for a job is to look at that Texas A&M job board. And if you're in the fisheries field and you want to make a profession out of this, don't be afraid to, to take a job that's in a state you've never been to working with a fish species you've never worked with. Yeah. Um, and getting out of your comfort zone because that is what it really takes to go far in this field yeah. and to at least add a good experience to your resume and, and meet it's, it's this people say it a lot, but when this field, like it's who, you know, is just as important, if not more than what, you know, and you realize really quickly, especially if you go to fishery society meetings, that it's a small field and um, you'll start to see the same names, and the same faces in these types of meetings. So yeah, get your name out there get job experience and, and just take risks when you're young and when you don't have anything holding you back, because that is, that is, I think, what can set you apart when you're applying for either a master's position or a, a your first full-time position or the, or the next level up as a part-time uh, technician is your experience. And you've got to take the risks and just get out of your comfort zone and it'll pay off. So that's awesome. definitely something I would like to, to get out to any listeners that are trying to think about where they want to go. And Yeah, definitely. No, I think that's great advice. And I, I would, yeah, I would say something very similar. All right, so in the interest of time, we'll go ahead and transition into the final five questions we ask each of our guests. So question number one, what is your favorite fish? I feel like that is like picking, asking somebody to pick their favorite child. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, honestly, like it's a really hard question, but right now it kind of changes with the month. But right now I'd say my favorite fish is the gag grouper. They're uh, one of my favorite fish to target down here in Florida. And they're just, they're really impressive their biology, how they change from male to female and head offshore and, and the big males stay offshore for the rest of their life. It's just, it's really neat. And they definitely have a personality when you bring them in a boat. I've never seen a fish look around the boat like a grouper does, a gag grouper does. And I respect them a lot. They're fun to catch and super cool biology behind them. So I, I would go with a gag grouper. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Not what I was expecting. That's, that's exciting. <laughs> um, cool to hear that that's changed since your time in Florida. All right, so number two for these final five questions, uh, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? I would say the one that came to mind was uh, when we were doing our acoustic tagging project of Southern Flounder in Alabama when our captain Richard Rutland hooked up with a 10-pound flounder, and I was the one that was lucky enough to grab the net and net that fish and and just the chaos of it all and I was in the middle of tagging a redfish with a, a Floyd tag and had to drop the red, grab the net, run, barely got the fish in the net. And just the atmosphere on the boat, I think, was definitely just definitely one that comes to mind. It's one of my favorite was netting that, that 10-pound flounder. Cool. Yeah, that's a huge flounder. <laughs> I bet that was insane. All right. So next, uh, what is your dream job and where would it be located? Yeah, I'd say just... I don't have a specific job in mind, but any job that involves making fishing better would be a, a dream job. Making fishing better in an area where where fishing is a big recreational activity. So probably on the coast with saltwater fishery would be the dream job is, is being involved with conserving and enhancing a fishery that's that's really popular. Whatever that may be, there's plenty of, op- of different possibilities. But Yeah, cool. All right. So... If money was not an issue, what is one project that you'd like to work on? 
I'll say if I had unlimited money, I'd like to put a lot of satellite tags out on tarpon and see exactly where they're going because I've heard of one where well, one was speared actually in New Jersey this summer. And I just feel like we don't really know what's going on with those fish. I know they're in Virginia and we never really knew they were going up to New Jersey until recently. So I think if I had unlimited dollars, I would put a lot of satellite tags out on tarpon and the keys and just see where they go. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. I'm actually had the same curiosity over the years as a tarpon angler in Virginia. Like, why the heck are these fish here? So, so yeah, no, I think that's, that would be a great project. All right. So lastly, there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into each of our listeners' heads. What would it be? I would say to just think about the moments that got you into the field of fisheries and fish conservation and think about all of the people involved in making sure that that experience was a possibility and ensuring that the work you do contributes to making sure that those opportunities are available to the next generation and for generations to come. Okay, awesome. I think that's a really good answer. If our listeners would like to get a hold of you, what's going to be the best way to do that? Uh, they can email me at steven with a ph dot stang at myfwc.com or they could also find me at sstang52 on Instagram. Okay, cool. I'll go ahead and link that in the show description so all of our listeners can find that down below. So yeah, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on the podcast, man. It's been a great, great time getting to catch up and hear about all the amazing things you've been up to since going through your undergrad and, and now into your master's work. So really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I mean, it means a lot that you reached out to me. I'm, I'm glad to come on and talk and I like listening to the podcast too. So look forward to listening to future guests and, and hoping that this podcast grows. Awesome. Yeah, we hope the same. <laughs> if you would like to get a hold of us at the Fisheries Podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Fisheries Pod, or by email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or by purchasing Fisheries Podcast logo merch available on Teespring. I'm Zach Crum, and thank you for listening to the 156th episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, it's important to work to conserve the resources that we care about so that they are available for future generations to enjoy. 